Hello, welcome to the Book of Medora podcast, where we talk about the lore of the Legend of Zelda series. I'm your host, Crystal, and with me as always is Monica. Hello. And Cameron. Hi. We're going to do a mailbag episode this time. I'm looking at our email and I forgot we had so many uh, more unread here. I mean, we they're read, so but we haven't many. answered them on mic. We have a chunk of them. Uh, I, I mean, we can just get get right in it, I guess. This this uh, this first one, that would be back from uh, December of last year. Remember last year? I don't. <laughs> so what's our speaking order here? I'll speak first. Okay. Uh, Lonicky writes in, Dear Book of Medora makers, long-time listener, first-time mailer. While I am eagerly awaiting to hear your views on Age of Calamity, I do hope that in the multiple episodes you not only spend time on all the lore presented in the game, but also share your top five hit-you-in-the-feels moments. The game is filled with hell-yeah cutscenes, and hearing you ladies and gentlemen talk about your enjoyment is just as fun, if not more, as extensive lore discussion. Kind regards, Lonicky. Well, thank you, Lonicky. Thank you. Um... I gotta think that we did have some reactions to different scenes as we were going through, but we never did anything like a top five sort of thing. So, Crystal, you've played through it most recently. What were your best moments? Not necessarily five, but like the ones that stood out to you. It's like, fuck yeah, this is happening. Um, I like the moment where um, Terrico... I like everything around Terrico. Yes. I like when evil Terrico was revealed... I like when Terrico sacrificed himself so that Zelda could kill Cell. Um, I like when they fixed Terrico in the secret ending. I like when Doctor Strange and Wong brought in all of the Avengers from all across the universe to fight Thanos. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, That's a real fuck yeah moment. I like when Zelda first awoke her power. Yes. That's five moments. Those are my top five in no order. That's a good top five in no order. That's a great order. <laughs> oh, yeah, because it is. Or, or, you know, non-order yeah, order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, most of my moments are similar to Crystal's. I think what stands out most strongly is just <laughs> Terrico's sacrifice, which kind of seems really corny, or at least I felt like a little, maybe a little bit defensively, like this is absurd. And then it plays Zelda's lullaby, and then I'm like, oh no. And she just starts crying. Uh huh. Not Zelda, Monica. Right, yes. Yeah. I mean, we were both crying, I hey, guess. Yeah. I don't mean you, I mean me and Zelda. Oh, yeah. That's All it. three of us were crying. Um, the, the flashback when you realize that. Rome had had done what he had done. Oh my god. That was a hell yeah moment? No, it wasn't hell yeah. It was very saddish. Again, a little bit amusing because it's oh, right. a this little bit melodram- you in the feels. Yeah, right. yeah, a little bit melodramatically amusing. Um, and then all the there were so many Z-Link moments, which uh that's great. They they block off things or, you know, link shields various things including a falling chunk of castle. Those are all very memorable. There's probably at least five within there that we could talk about. Yeah, but I think my, my most replayed video clip moment is the the one in the village where Terrico is about to jump in the way of um, what's-his-face's uh, kunai. Yeah. And then Link just blocks that, and then uh, m- this awkward tension, and then... Uh, Terrico gets pissed off and like runs up to Link and starts like chewing him out. Yeah. That's my favorite. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, 
I really like the scene where Sidon jumps to Mifa's defense. Yes, I knew you would say that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it, that that is about as insightful as me saying I knew you would say the Z Link moments. Uh huh. Um, I just think that it was really good as a way to frame and to cap off the scenes of all the descendants coming in to protect the original champions. Um, the departure was also really good. Yes, the departure was quite good. I have a strong affection for, like, uh, evil laughing wizard bastards, so I, I just want to shout out uh, Aster here for some of his evil laughs in the English dub, because they're genuinely great. Uh-huh. I think Aster came out of the English dub better than any other character, just chewing the scenery the whole fucking time. I know that's not a hit-you-in-the-feels moment, but I love that shit. I just love evil wizards. We need more straight-up, uncomplicated evil wizards. Uh-huh. I like a lot of the side story stuff, just in small ways. Um, I like that uh, Midna proposed to Link, and Link accepted her proposal. I Not like, Midna. Huh? Not Midna. Oh, I'm sorry, Mifa. Look, me and Monica were talking a lot about Twilight Princess yesterday, and they have the same name. So, yes, Mifa proposed to Link, and Link accepted the proposal. I like that part. Uh-huh. Uh, I do like everything that has to do with Zelda in this game. Like, it's just such a... Such a zeroing in on why she's sad. And it's not so much about like, oh, I can't do the thing, as it explores the reasons behind why she can't do the thing. And I love all of those. Crystal, did I link you that article where uh, Koei Tecmo revealed that they were they had long arguments about whether or not Zelda should be playable? I know. I have not read this one. <laughs> it's just like the tiniest... Like Monica has given you the entire thing. It's like one... So offhand comment that somebody made where like they weren't sure for a long time if Zelda should be playable. That's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But she was playable in the last game. Uh-huh. They already, they already crossed this bridge. Crystal, have you considered that everyone is cowards? I... It's like, it's like Sakurai thought that Breath of the Wild Zelda shouldn't be playable. I guess these... The, the, this crew was leaning in the same way. Wait, did Sakurai say that specifically? Yes. Uh-huh. That's well, why it's Breath of the Wild Link, but Link to the Past slash Link Between World Zelda. Wait, what was his reasoning? Well, she's a scholar, not a fighter. You know, as compared to, like, Princess Peach or, or Isabel. Ocarina of Time Zelda. But a Link Between World Zelda is not a fighter yeah. either. Uh-huh. Neither is Link to the Past Zelda. I thought his his thinking was just he wanted some, like, diversity among the designs. Oh, that's a gr that's a great post facto justification that fandom came up with. But no, Sakurai said it was because they didn't think that Breath of the Wild Zelda would be a fighter. Okay, ain't that some shit? That's that's stupid. It's not right. That's that's it's definitely in the wrong. Our our girl get done dirty at every crossway, which away, and it's going to take like. Nintendo's often gone to third parties that they're working with and told them to push harder, right? Like, they told the Bayonetta team to, like, no, 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 just make Bayonetta's Link costume even wilder. Yeah, make the Peach costume even wilder. They try to push third parties, and I'm wondering, did they have to push Koei Tecmo to make Zelda playable? I don't know, but it's possible. Very possible. I, I, I want them to have a George Lucas mentality about Zelda, where every time someone on the Clone Wars or any one of their shows consults with George, they're like, 
oh, geez, would, would I be ruining the sanctity of Star Wars if I made this narrative decision? He's like, yeah, whatever. I don't know, man. I made <laughs> this movie for kids. Seriously. He's just sitting there banging his action figures together. He's like, ruin the sanctity of what? He calls them laser swords, as he should. He does. God. Yeah, I... And I feel like, to some degree, that happens with games that are, like, semi-canonical. Like, Ubisoft um, Milan had a very similar thing with Mario plus Rabbits, where it's like, no, you can go further, it's fine. No, keep going, we want to work on the humor here. And everybody's so nervous. I guess they assume that Nintendo's going to be about, like, Disney with this shit. I mean, Nintendo does have a reputation, but... Nintendo is like Disney with this shit in everything except for video games made by third parties. And they're more relaxed during crossovers. Yeah, which is weird. I don't know. It, it's just the idea that we wouldn't go. We we wouldn't have got our. We wouldn't have got our 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 our, our whole our, the whole thing with our girl. Thankfully, yeah. somebody was overruled. Thankfully, you were saying. I'm saying they made a Zelda game. They made a game where Zelda is the main character. They did, uh-huh. and I I worry that we're not going to get more of that. Until such time as, like, Zelda is playable in one of the mainline games. That's going to be a while. Yeah, well. <sighs> shall we take the next email? Yes, please. Certainly. Shall I? Yes, please. Okay. So Banjo Man writes in, Having finished Age of Calamity, a lot of questions have popped up. While these are the big questions that everyone has pondered, doesn't hurt to ask. Firstly, a theory. Since I don't believe Breath of the Wild 2 will address Age of Calamity, I needed an answer for the egg bringing the modern champions into the past. So I came up with this. What if the champions lost their memories when returning to their timeline? So when they return to the Breath of the Wild timeline, they don't remember any of the events in Age of Calamity. Next, Age of Calamity doesn't exactly fit the same story as the backstory of Breath of the Wild. Particularly, the egg was never addressed, and Link doesn't have the Master Sword at the beginning of the game. In Breath of the Wild 2, it is implied he got the sword fairly early on. Why do you think this is? Did Egg Boy make an entirely new world like the loading screen implies? Do you think that Age of Calamity will have a DLC that shows what actually happened in the Breath of the Wild timeline? If so, what new characters would you like to see played in this DLC? Lastly, I'm probably one of your younger listeners, but I'm rather interested in writing novels. In practice, I've written some fan fictions, but not a Zelda one. So I bring this question to the best source of Zelda information, the Midorians. I want to write a Zelda fanfic. What should it be about? A retelling? An AU? A brochure about the accursed timeline, the best theory I've heard of yet? Ooh. I'd love to hear your crazy yet wonderful ideas. Signing off, Banjo Man. Thank you, Banjo Man. Uh, there's a lot in this to unpack. Let's go one at a time. Uh, I think the champions losing their... Don't they imply that in the game, that they lose their memories? No, they don't. That's, that's, that's something that a lot of people think must happen, because, like... They're not confident that Breath of the Wild 2 will address the events of Age of Calamity, but I don't think they will. I think that they're going to like, they're going to be like, man, you won't believe this thing I did, but I'm not going to tell you about it because it's way too, de- like, our world is so depressing compared to that. <laughs> what do you think, Monica? I think, well, we won't really know or can say for sure until Breath of the Wild 2. We probably won't hear anything in Breath of the Wild 2, but it's... It, I think the events of Age of Calamity mesh just fine if um, the future champions are taken from after the events of Breath of the Wild. So they assisted Link, their Link. Yeah, of course. Main <laughs> Link. And then they were called back on this thing. 
And they're like, I'm all up to speed on all of this. Right. What's your ultimate take, Crystal? Um, I don't think Breath of the Wild 2 will address Age of Calamity as much as I would like it to. Mm-hmm. So I think it it doesn't really matter. But if we want to make it fit in the timeline neatly, they probably lose their memories. Oh, we'll see if that happens, but I hope not. Yeah, we'll do an assessment after Breath of the Wild 2 to uh, see if some memory loss is needed. Assuming that those characters are yeah, even assuming that we even to. run into them again, which I'm not 100% convinced uh, on. Yeah, direct sequels in Zelda are so rare. Actually, have we ever done a direct sequel that still had the same characters in it outside of Link? Impa was in Zelda 2. That's that's true, but she wasn't actually in Zelda 1. Wait. She wasn't really in Yeah, she was, Yeah, okay. She, she's in the manuals for both. That's true. Um, okay, so there's Link and Tetra. Between Wind Waker and Phantom Hourglass. Mm-hmm. There's uh, uh, Nico in Spirit Tracks. Oh, that's true. Mm-hmm. Nico's in there. I don't know. We're kind of going into uncharted territory. There's Ganondorf, not- of course. It's hard to argue with Ganondorf. He's not out to have a, a very lengthy, honest conversation. No. As to the second question, I do think that Terrico made a new world in the sense that it's a new timeline. Yep. Yeah, and I, I think we figured out in the episode that the timeline basically works, that Terrico, Terrico and evil Terrico arrived pretty early, and they changed things pretty quickly. Yes, they did. And it's great. Do we think that Bre- Age of Calamity will get DLC showing the dark timeline? Uh, have they said what's in that other season pass? It said that there's more character vignettes and stuff in it. but Wait, Do they- we still have more to come? Yeah, there's one more thing. Oh, okay. But no, we don't really know. Hmm. I don't think they will. I'm not sure what they do in the dark timeline. Well, I mean, they die first. Right. And then you gotta run across Hyrule Field to make your way to the Blatchery Plain, and then you die. It's like two missions. Okay. (laughs) No. I don't think that's gonna happen. I mean, I think it would be fun to do Zelda marching towards the castle. Okay, yeah, that'd be sick. Oh, yes. That's right. We, th- we we were so sure that that was going to happen in this game before before the happening. But if they did that, she has to be a lot more powerful. Yeah. Or uh, power. Link doing his Halo Reach mission where he has to kill 100 Guardians and then die. Yeah, 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 yeah. We can do both of those. Oh. It, it, I don't think they're going to do it, but it could be a couple of really good missions. Yeah, those would be good standalone missions. Okay, what kind oh banjo mano forgive me um what kind of fanfic do y'all think banjo mano should write um i see i'm not a very experienced writer that's fine you you still know what kind of stories you like i mean i would just write you know what you're interested in like what what are the, when you think about zelda what are the things you tend to think about what do you gravitate towards yeah that's definitely a good starting point. Really uh, take notes of the different ideas that you have and then um, think about them a little bit each in turn to see how much you can really you know, scaffold on. Because sometimes you have a great concept, but there isn't much there, as it were. And then others are just so idea-laden. And I think if you've written uh, a couple of... Um, fan fiction works you probably have in your mind or an understanding do i like writing you know little drabbles are they still called drabbles i don't know little short fix or um you know uh 
multi-chapter things or huge stonking novels. Um, don't start off with the novels, I would say. Some shorter, you know, they don't have to be drabble length, but, uh, you know, so that you can actually accomplish a couple of discrete, concrete things to build up your own uh, experience and confidence before you jump into something really uh, month or year, year long in the making. I mean, Banjo's definitely completed some fanfics before. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to jump into the giant novel thing, then by all means. I'm going to echo what Crystal said and a little bit of what Monica said, and that the chief thing you want to do is to write what you want to read. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like, what is the fanfic that you would most be delighted to read if it was out there? And then write that damn thing. Like, whatever your what-if scenario is where it's like, wouldn't it be cool if... There. That, that's your fanfic. Because the most daunting thing about writing anything, I think, is just losing steam or losing interest and petering out. Know what you want to write. Work toward a specific scene. No, like That's what I like to do. Get one scene in your head of what you want to write and work toward it. And you should always write for yourself. Like Other people are bonus. Yeah, the great thing about being an independent writer is that you don't have, like... You know, you don't have the Netflix uh, marketing department over your shoulder, like making sure you write something that's going to have the widest appeal. And yeah. uh, I, this might not be true of you, Bondramon. I'm kind of projecting, but sometimes I encounter writers who still have like the Netflix marketing department in their head that's like saying, well, I can't just write what I want, but actually you can. You can. You're free from the shackles of capitalism. That sounds like a joke, but it's actually true. I'm, it's very literal. I know. I'm, I'm telling the listeners that sounds like a joke, but it's true. Write what you, whatever your heart most desires. Go for it. Also, the world can always use more shipfic. I suppose that's true. <laughs> yeah, shipfic is, you know, if, it, shipfic's always a good uh, starting point. It's a good default. Cause there, there's always an audience that browses those tags specifically and will go through all of the newest stuff. world could use more ship fic. I think like 75% of all Zelda fic at least is ship fic. The world could use more of it. Okay. Okay, this next email is from Charlotte. Hello, I was playing Age of Calamity and noticed that Zelda is referred to in the HUD by they pronouns, see attached image. Is it possible that Zelda is non-binary and part of the reason Rome gives him such a hard time is because he doesn't accept his child's gender identity? Transphobia seems very in character for Rome, so I was curious to hear y'all's thoughts. Thanks for reading. I love the podcast. Sincerely, Charlotte. God Rome damn. would absolutely be transphobic. Oh my god. Oh no. <laughs> like, that isn't something that we had applied to him up to this point, but yeah, that I, th- I think that he, best reading, he would go, I'm not against it, but I don't get it. I... I would normally say, well, let's not like paint somebody as but uh, transphobic, wrong. but 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 if we look at this in terms of prophecy and that uh, there's supposed to be a girl, a princess yeah. of destiny, uh-huh. and uh, your child is not uh, identifying as princess of destiny, I-, I think he would have major issues. So we can all agree. That there's a very real possibility that Rome would be a deeply transphobic motherfucker. Uh-huh. As okay. for the writing of this, you know, obviously what it is is that they wanted to use a neutral pronoun so they could slot any character's name in there. But, oh, yes. you know, I'm not above uh, doing a fun <laughs> trans head canon. I'm it's, not too the, good for that. 
the really fun thing about Age of Calamity is that it does that with every character. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate it. it's um, you know, something that makes the game developers' lives easier so they don't have to trip over pronouns and then it's something that is, you know, super inclusive and forward uh, looking which is they is a perfectly acceptable single person pronoun. Yeah. <laughs> so you got they sure. them Link, you got they them Zelda, uh they them Impa, they them uh all of them. All of them. Literally all of them. Uh, between all the side missions, I think that you end up not necessarily escorting, but dealing with people in a way that they're referred to using those pronouns at least once for every character, including the great fairies and Ganon. And the Grudo and the Gorin. Yeah, everyone's they. But it's interesting to think about how Zelda's role as, as the sealer, as the descendant of the goddess... In the prophecy, that is always intensely gendered as the princess. Yeah. So, like, what what happens to the sons of this family? I think that this is really our rationale as to why it is a queen and a matrilineal um, bloodline. Because this is just the Japanese, like, emperor sort of thing. Only men can inherit the title and so forth. Right. And is passed through through their blood. It's just reversed here. Right. Even if the writers forget sometimes. But personally, I I think that there should be, uh, you know, non-female Zeldas or uh, people of destiny on the the bloodline of the goddess. Yeah, I don't... I think that the way the setting wants you to read it is that there aren't really any sons of the bloodline of Hylia. We all think Daphnis is, though, don't we? You think Daphnis is part of the royal line? Did we consider that during the Daphnis, No Hansen, Hyrule? Yes. Like the sons go off to form cadet branches that then marry back into the family? <laughs> it's like thousands of years. I don't know. Uh, I don't know, girl, because like every head monarch, according to this reading, is a woman, right? Yeah. Who, who, who is Daphnis's a... queen? We don't know. I'll tell Early you for death. free. Her name was Zelda. <laughs> okay. Okay, okay. Um, but, uh, you know, in Skyward Sword and in Triforce of the Gods, the old gods were not gendered. But then Helia, Helia is the goddess. And after her, the old gods became the goddesses. That's true. Yes. The ultimate foundation of the setting is ungendered, in a sense. But then Helia invented gender. Helia invented gender. <laughs> well, I mean, you can't blame her too much. Gender can be all right for some folks. Sometimes. Uh-huh. Sometimes. And then okay. she got way too much into it. Okay. Um, Terminal Recession writes in. Oh, this is a joke. We, I think we did read this part, the um, Andrew's joke. Oh, there's also a, a, a question in the PS. Right. That's the part. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Who made the Bemos? Is it just whatever bad guy architect is going around building all the temples and dungeons full of traps? Are they sentient? Are they related to Breath of the Wild's guardians in any way? They look like friends. I think it really depends on each game. The guardians connection is interesting. I don't think I've thought of that before, but it seems obvious now. Yeah, guardians are basically really big bemos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if when you if you do start, well, no, you've been playing Skyward Sword HD, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the bemos in there really um, will make you think of the guardians. Especially the flying Bemos. 
the flying ones, but also the the um, the tall pillar ones. They have you know the charge up the eye, all of that. But uh, you know sometimes I would say they are a little bit more monstrous and a little bit less mechanical, and other times they're very clearly part of a temple um, and probably then constructed uh, either by Hylia or uh, the Sheikah or one of her supporters. The uh, the Ocarina Bemos are, are little monsters. Yeah, they got like regular ass eyes and big scary mouths and noses, I think. And then noses? little feet that are just under their, their uh, mouths. Cameron is now pulling up a picture for me because... I just remember that they're yellow and they kind of... Oh, ew. Wow. <laughs> huh. You know, somehow, because it was a bit grainier in the past, and I never really look at them, I just destroy them. I had, in my head, sort of just pictured them as like a, a water heater. <laughs> but no, these are very monster. I mean, they're made of metal. At least they react metallically to being hit with a sword. Yeah. But yeah, they are they they seem to be organic creatures, or yeah, at least those are teeth. Yeah, Ugh. Ocarina of Time had some really great, scary monster designs. If you really stepped back and looked at it, are these the Uka? They do look kind of Uka-ish, don't they? Uh huh. Maybe oh, the Uka on. made them in their image. <laughs> I found a uh, I found a deviant art image of a Beemos from Ocarina of Time rendered in flesh. That's terrifying. Okay, yeah. It's not even showing its teeth. It kind of looks even more like a uka now. Yeah. It's the little feet that are getting me, because I, I, I never noticed the fucking feet. <sighs> who's, who's making these? A bad person. Ganon. Ganon's making these motherfuckers. But, like, definitely the Beemos and, like, Skyward Sword. That fourth image there. That's that's just... That was constructed and specifically placed in... Um, the mining facility and so on. Yeah, as dra- part of the security dragons universe. made those Beemos. Yes. They even look like the other uh, robots. Yeah. Okay. 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 Um, <laughs> question apparently from Cameron. I, I sent in some questions, apparently. Uh, Monica, am I up or are you up? You. Oh, okay. Well, that's fortuitous. I'm writing this because I don't know when the next recording will be, and I don't want to forget. If, in the course of playing the sequel to Breath of the Wild you were to hear a song from earlier in the series, what song would you be most excited to hear? Oh, I have a, I have an easy answer to this one. Okay, what's that? I want to to go to Gan- wherever Ganondorf goes, wherever his lair is. Uh-huh. I want to walk through a tunnel uh-huh. and come out into a vast desert and hear Gerudo Valley. Ooh. Ooh. That'd be tight. That's nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about you, Monica? Um, Just assume that we are going to hear Zelda's lullaby in the right, theme of the right. hero. That's pretty standard. I think it wouldn't be like a hype moment because the song's not hype, but the song of healing. Oh, that would be interesting. I want Ganon's theme to play when you are getting very close to where he's waiting for you. Will Will he be playing on an organ? I, it will be diegetic music. <laughs> He'll be rehydrated. It doesn't have to be an organ. It could be like a choir of monsters singing it as you're walking along. I don't know. I don't care. But it's there. Is Ganon rehydrated? Yeah, I guess. 
I mean, he's double Dracula Super Satan. He can probably get some skin back on him. Is Ganon hot? Um, I think he should be. Okay. But, I mean, if you depending on who you ask, every Ganondorf so far <laughs> has been hot to some folks. Uh-huh. Oh, well, let me rephrase the question. Should Ganon be a Bishonin? No. No. Absolutely okay. not. I'd, mm, I'd be into it. I know you'd be into <laughs> it, but Ganon should, like... I don't know what the word is for the burlier kind of attractive. Bara. (laughs) Bara might be going uh, a step further than I'm thinking, but yeah, I'd sooner have Bara Ganon than Bishonin Ganon. I'm uh, Bishonin is okay, but it has to be evil Bishonin. Of course, he should be like the hot asshole dad that you're really upset that you find hot. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have an example? No. I don't, but you could hear Crystal form the image perfectly in their mind as soon as I said it. Exactly. Just like give him give give him some gray around his temples and make him a motherfucker. And yeah, I, it's all yeah. I think the word you might have been looking for is uh Ikimen. Ikimen. Uh typically characterized as being sharply dressed individuals with slanted intelligent eyes. Husky voices, slender wrists and fingers, a manly build, an unruffled appearance, pale skin, and clean smelling with an air of mystery around them. Oh, that's that's very uh, high class. I could I could go with a somewhat wispier, less battle-y looking Ganondorf, I suppose. Lean into the wizard portion. Yeah, that could work. That could work. Wait, why are we why are we talking about how hot Ganon could be? <laughs> I don't know. It should kind of be hot, though. Yeah. I mean, Ganon, depending on who you ask, Ganondorf's always been hot. And each one is kind of hot in different ways. But yeah, I could, I could definitely lean into a different look for this one. I've seen a lot of rehydrated Ganon, but like, nice guy. And that, oh, I would no. say that's not, not, please, no. If <laughs> if they give us double Dracula Super Satan Ganondorf, and then it turns out that he's a nice guy, I'm going to lose my mind. I mean, I'm sure it'll be fine once I actually play yeah. it, but... That's not what I'm expecting. Holy shit, I sent a second part to this. Follow-up that is best answered after Age of Calamity. Is Breath of the Wild Link the biggest himbo of all the links? Uh, yes, the part where Urbosa said, look at him, and then he's just eating rocks and all his bros are cheering him on is, is, is pretty himbo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. He's strong, cute, and nice, which is everything that you need. To, oh, I'm sorry, and also dumb. Um, is he more himbo in the setting of Breath of the Wild, though? Like, post-Calamity stuff, rather than, like, a hundred years ago and in Age of Calamity? I think if you take them as being the same person under different circumstances, that he, it's like, I don't know. It, it depends on how you... A lot of people read Breath of the Wild Link in the game itself as not having any personality at all. That's wrong. In Breath of the Wild, Link has, like, a physics degree, and in Age of Calamity, he just hits. Yeah, that's true. I, 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 I think that he's um, he's definitely broer in Age of Calamity. I think I was saying Breath of the Wild, Link, to be encompassing of Age of Calamity. Like, if you were to compare him to Skyward Sword, Link, or Ocarina of Time, Link, then yeah, I'd, I'd say he definitely ranks higher on that list. Okay. Next email. So this is Banjo Mano again. Um, noting that there were problems with the original email. No, 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 it's covering all the same things. Oh. 
I'm cutting this part again. Okay. Is there anything that we need to cover in here? No. No. Okay. In fact, the next one is from <laughs> Monica. Uh-huh. What does oh, it say, how, how Monica? Fortuitous. There is nothing in the body of the email. <laughs> but the title is Discuss Skyward Sword Speedruns. Oh, this is exciting. Okay, Crystal, you did we send you the... Have we actually talked about this on the podcast? Yeah, you sent me something about an absurd Skyward Sword speedrun, and they figured out some new trick recently. We did not talk about this in uh, our recordings. Okay, so what we what happened was Skyward Sword was one of the on one of the games done quick marathons, and the way that Skyward Sword speedrunning works in the Wii version, not the Switch version, the Switch version doesn't have quite the same save system going, is that you can load things into like you can carry over event triggers from one save file to another in a way that they refer to as timeline skipping and monica and i were watching it and we were both like oh this is just how hylia actually sees the events of skyward sword oh yeah that (laughs) yes uh there is a, a kotaku article by heather alexandra uh, Zelda Skyward Sword speedrunning has been stale for a while, but a new trick might change that, I think, is part of it. So what do you make of this whole thing where it's like this speedrunning is accidentally how the gods see the universe, Crystal? Yes, I, I like thinking of things that way. Certainly, when I think of the ha- famous half-A-Press video, it seems like divine logic. Oh, yeah, the half-A-Press video is very much the one. The half A press. Uh huh. The ha- the Super Mario sixty four half A press video. Can you beat how many A presses, including half presses, does it take to beat Super Mario sixty four? Oh, okay. Huh. Because you see, a full press is when you let go of the button. I see. Right. Okay. There, there was also something where the Skyward Sword speed running. They were playing inside of the menu. Yes, absolutely. That you you have it running so that you can keep a file loaded up while going. And selecting a different file so that you load the event triggers from one file into another file. That's timeline skipping. And No, and then also it's like you see Skyloft in the menu. Yeah, and it's not completely loaded so you can move through barriers that are normally there. Yes, that is trippy as heck. It's it's great. Um, if anyone is at all interested in this, fascinating to watch. Look up Games Done Quick Skyward Sword. 100% worth watching. Whatever the latest one is that's the Wii version, watch that. Okay. Tyler writes in, Hi everyone, I was wanting to get your thoughts and an idea of what could possibly happen in the sequel to Breath of the Wild. I have a theory that since it's a direct sequel, any progress, such as heart containers, stamina vessels, and Korok seeds, would transfer over to the next game, considering that it wouldn't make much sense for Link to regress. I want to hear your thoughts on the possibility of this happening. Also, although probably fake, I've seen rumbles of the title of the sequel being Legend of Zelda Echoes of the Past. It's a very strong name. What do y'all think? Anyways, keep it up. I love the podcast and hearing the insanely deep dive that transpires in each and every episode. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks, Tyler. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, I think that Breath of the Wild 2 is going to start you off with six hearts, but every heart of damage you take is equivalent to five hearts in the first game. <sighs> That's very think- specific. I don't think they're going to do any save transfer or anything, but I, it would make sense to me if they had some sort of um, way to represent that that this is a Link who has already gained a lot of power. Like having the Master Sword at the start? Yeah. Or having, you know, 
more base hearts or stamina or inventory space or whatever. That would make sense. And it would, like, I don't think that they're going to quite do like Adventure of Link where they switched over to a different health system entirely. No. I think it's also rather um, hopeful to to think that Nintendo will do this and not just start you from fresh for no describable reason either. It'd be cool. I'd be all for that. I mean, they have an excuse, which is that Link got owned by Ganon. Yeah. yeah. Lost an arm. Lost all of your, your heart containers. That's an extremely strong Metroid Prime 2 Echoes opening. Lost all your stamina. Lost your that arms where he was keeping all that stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, if you are a swordsman, then your your arm... Was it his left hand? It was right his, hand? It's his right hand. Sword hand? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was keeping all of his skills there. New title? Echoes of the Past. I That one doesn't really speak to me, I'm afraid. Uh, this is the best kind of Zelda rumor that takes me back to, you know, uh, aughts or pre-aughts time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like... Some of our readers will be old enough to remember Valley of the Flood, but way back when, the first time we heard Zelda guide in, we were like, Err! or you're a Zelda. Mask of Mujula. Yeah. The lead up to, it was different back then, though, because we were hearing like actual phrases that were being used to refer to the game. What was you're a Zelda even about? I relate that to Majora's Mask for some reason. Uh, no, this one doesn't speak to me either. This is heavy Valley of the Flood, which was not real. Yeah, it, it does have that whiff of Valley of the Flood about it. I don't think that's going to be the one. But so it feels good. It, it, it's it got that feel to it, but it feels a bit too much like something that fans would write in anticipation of what the title would be. But titles in the Zelda games are always specific. Like... Echoes of the Past could be referring to the events of Breath of the Wild, Link to the Past, Twilight Princess. All, all Zelda games are about dealing with Echoes of the Past, and it, it's just too general. And I think probably triggered by that uh, raindrop imagery in the trailer. Water Th- this drop. is from January. Oh, it was before that? I think Good so. Good job. Well. Hope hope the people who believe in this are getting more hype. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Euro Zelda was Master Quest, but there was also supposed to be like a new dungeon and new enemies. Right. Yeah, it was like a whole full-blown expansion pack. Right. But yeah, the, the the Zelda sequel will be named after a specific character, item, or mechanic. Breath of the Wild is sort of a weird exception to that. It was the gameplay basis of the entire game. Yes, but it, it was not as concrete as the last few. True. Oh, no. <laughs> The title of this next one. Uh, whose turn is it? I, uh, Crystal, whose turn is it? Didn't I read the last one? That yes. sounds right. Okay, so it's my turn. Hi, everyone. Rose here. I am here expressly to defend Crystal's theory that the people of Hytopia and Triforce Heroes are the spirits of good. Unfortunately, my defense of Crystal's theory involves an even more far-fetched theory, but just follow along with me on this. Let's get hype. This, this is what this podcast is all about. Triforce Heroes takes place during the 100 years that Link lay in the Shrine of Resurrection because Breath of the Wild's Link is the Link of Triforce Heroes. Oh, fuck. I should first address the why and how. The Shrine of Resurrection is made to revive the hero. Physically, this should pose no challenge, as the Sheikah are clearly advanced and red potions and fairies already show that healing physical wounds is easy. Keeping the spirit of the hero sustained poses a greater challenge. 
either as an unconscious action by Link, a string pulled by Hylia, or a function of the shrine itself, I believe it is a mix of all three, Link invokes the power to enter the Silent Realm of Skyward Sword. The Silent Realm turned into the Sacred Realm, and has since turned into the Drablands as a consequence of the converged timelines due to Ganon's wish. In its mangled state, it is not far-fetched to say that Link would appear on the outside of it, or maybe the technology of the Shrine of Resurrection mimics the trial gates of Skyward Sword and directs Link to Hytopia itself. Thus, Hytopia served as a place to keep the spirit of the hero alive and active so that Link could return 100 years later. This explains some things about Breath of the Wild and Triforce Heroes. For Triforce Heroes, this explains the three links and the minor timeline split discussed in the podcast between the single-player and multiplayer mode. The Accursed Timeline posits that the Calamity Ganon reached its peak in power due to the timelines converging and the different Ganons combining into one destructive force. This also implies that the same happened to Link and Zelda to some degree. The three timeline results in three spirits of the hero resting in Breath of the Wild's Link. Oh, fuck me. He wields its power as one, explaining how he was so powerful in the backstory of the game. Phi states that entering the Silent Realm transports specifically your spirit there. So if his spirit was sent to the Drablands, or Hytopia, we can reason two things. Either it splits into three and manifests as three links, or it stays together as one and Link needs the assistance of the Doppels. Link's soul actually transports between the Doppels, which makes sense considering his disembodied soul state. This also explains why the Hytopians asked for specifically a hero resembling Link. They were doing a favor for their sp- fellow spirit of good, Hylia, watching after her hero as he regained his strength. I don't mean to say the conflict of Triforce heroes is manufactured to give him something to do, though. Maybe it was just a coincidence. For Breath of the Wild, Link is very stoic before the 100 years, and his personality shifts dramatically into what we see in Breath of the Wild. I believe the events of Triforce heroes seemed like a dream to Link, though it did actually happen, I'm not proposing it was all a dream, and Link's personality was affected dramatically by it. He's silly. Sure, he lost all his memories, so maybe this is his default state, but from the get-go, asking the old man, Paraglider, please, repeatedly is the kind of dialogue that falls in line with the links we see in Triforce Heroes. Link also tries on different clothing and appears to have some degree of an interest in fashion. This likely stemmed from his experiences as a Hytopian. Huh. This theory explains the existence of the Salvager set's existence in Breath of the Wild. Fuck me, I don't know how this is going to work out. The Salvager set is an outfit identical to Rex's outfit from Xenoblade Chronicles 2. And the only person who could possibly make it is Madame Couture, since she can make outfits from other universes. She must have made it as a parting gift for Link, sending it down from the heaven she lives in, since she is a spirit of good, obviously, as a red shooting star. Maybe all shooting stars are gift from Hytopians as well. Star fragments exist in both games, and in Breath of the Wild they are used as a final ingredient to upgrade clothing, something obviously dear to the Hytopians. That's my theory. I started this as a way to explain the Salvager set as a shitpost, but I ended up kind of falling in love with it. The only major problem with this I see is that it seems the Goddess Sword is the key to the Silent Realm, and that is clearly not used in the Shrine of Resurrection. As the Sheikah have advanced technology, 10,000 years, and are servants of Hylia, who is the one who forged the sword in the first place, there is some leniency there, I believe. Or maybe the Master Sword, still having Phi in it, was key to the shrine's use. Also, this theory implies that Link was up there for 100 years. Maybe time works weirdly. I don't know. I love the podcast and look forward to whatever lore you all dive into. I hope you do a Metroid episode someday, because I love Metroid lore everywhere except in Other M. Thank you. Rose. This is incredible. This is Rose. awesome. I love it. I I think 
I think I have to revise my take. Uh-huh. I think Ro- I I think Rose I think Rose won this argument. Yeah, Rose has uh, embodied the key, the keystone of the Book of Medora, which is uh, nothing is uh, you know concrete. You can make your own theory, start from any point of interest, and uh, make it work. And this works. Shit. It's so good. It's so good. The only argument I have against this is that part of the basis for um, Triforce Heroes' placement is that it it was a time of long peace, the 10,000 years of peace. So that's why the spirits of good uh, only cared about stupid bullshit. Yeah, but this is so strong. Yeah, I I don't think that counter-argument is strong enough to beat this. I... I... I think this is, I'm not sure how we should handle this precisely, but I think this is the first time that a reader has sent in a theory that made me stop and go, now we need to adjust the timeline. (laughs) Yeah, I I actually pulled up the uh, Accursed Timeline document just to refresh my memory on the placement, and it's, it's not too major a change. No. It is just slotting in between, you know, just moving it slightly down. Yeah, that... God damn it. And I even think the Age of Peace thing works fine in that, um, you know, inside of the shrine, uh, in those moments, there has been a very, very, very long time of peace. There was just, you know, a blip at the end of it, but we are a cut away from that blip. This would also mean that Ganon breaking loose coincides with the beginning of the crisis in Hytopia. Yeah. It has, it has triple links. For merging three timelines, it has an explanation for why the long period of peace ends at the end of the 10,000 years. It has an explanation for why the canonical appearance of the outfit from Xenoblade Chronicles 2 could be a thing. It explains why you can walk around in a graphic tee of the Nintendo Switch logo. Oh, shit. Oh, shit, it's too good. We should email Rose. Yes. Apologies for the delay. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. Okay, we're gonna have to we're we're gonna have to credit Rose in future versions of this fucking timeline. In the yeah. document, yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is hype. Shit. This is a great mailbag. This is this. <laughs> th- th- this mailbag changed the timeline. Like, th- welcome to the Majora's Mask of the mailbag episodes, because this changes everything. The moon is crashing, and I don't know what to do with it. Okay, Crystal, I'm sorry. You were right. The Hytopians are spirits of good. <laughs> Yay! Nice. Thank you, Rose. Thanks, Rose. Okay. This is only possible with fans like you. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, let me load up the next email. Letter from Tito. Hi again. So I had a quick question, but I'm still making my way through the podcast. Currently ending Skyward Sword. This was sent February 7th, so... I'm assuming uh, Tito may be done now. Uh, So I preemptively apologize if this is addressed already. If we take the three goddesses and therefore the Triforce to be creators of a non-moral nature, that is to say, they aren't good or evil, they just create and are personified power and energy, would they be equivalent to what we know in our world as the fundamental forces of the universe? These are the unseen forces that allow particles and matter to exist and decay, to have gravitational force and electromagnetism. These are the rules of the game board by which the players, atoms, planets, stars, humans, animals, great Zelda jokes, need to live by. 
So it may seem that anyone who controls the rules, the forces of the universe, would be able to change reality itself. Just an idea I'm trying to think about and wanted to bring up before I forgot. Hope it makes some sense. Much support from Tito. Big fan. Thanks, Tito. Thank you, Tito. Thank you, Tito. I do like the idea of the old gods as fundamental forces that may not necessarily even have what we would think of as agency, because the plane on which they exist is so far removed from ours that we couldn't recognize their intelligences as intelligence. Yeah, if Helia is someone that's doing speedrun hacks in the menu, and you think of a tier above that, like, what would that be? The game code. Yeah. Yeah, it would... The hardware, the game code, and... It would uh, be like those uh, Ocarina of Time speed runs where they actually, like, use controller inputs to input code on the fly and skip directly to the end credits. (laughs) But, like, the gods are the controller in this case. They are the code being input. So if you you look, think of the old Miyamoto idea that the Triforce is the chip of the nintendo family computer and the triforce is is merely a small part of the essence of the old gods then the old gods are like uh you know silicon (laughs) they are the system itself yes the nintendo nintendo ah i don't mind this theory i like it um and i think this is probably what a an, an atheist in the uh, Zelda universe might purport that you know the tellings of the old gods or goddesses are just you know the the formation of the universe. If they had no active agency and uh, opinion on good and evil, then you are just describing natural forces here. It would explain how distant and removed they are for all of their power. And in the end, it makes very little difference. They they go back away to a distant nebula and never interact again. So so having the Triforce is kind of like having a game genie. Yeah. A, a lot of our listeners might be too young to remember <laughs> what that is. A game shark? Uh, a game shark. They might be too young to remember what that is. A cheating hacking device that allowed you to just... Hacks. Hacks. Do hacks on console games. How do people do hacks these days? I don't know. A uh, PC has old. cheat engine. Oh yeah. You go online and buy gold off of somebody. <laughs> That's not the same thing. All right. Um, Charlotte writes in titled Nine Circles of Hell in Zelda." Hi everyone. I was just listening to your bonus episode twenty-five mailback episode. I was struck by the conversation you all had about whether or not the realm of the Ocean King would survive the Ocean King's death. Crystal argued that it would not, while Cameron argued that it could, comparing it to how the theoretical death of the Christian god wouldn't destroy our reality. Because we already know that reality can exist without God, because that's what hell is. Oh my gosh. So my question is... I totally forgot about that. So my question is, do you think it's possible that to the citizens of the realm of the Ocean King... The plane of reality that the great ocean and high rule exist on is hell, because it is a place without oceans. Perhaps the great ocean is the first circle of hell, while high rule is left as a place without Hylia, making it the second circle. Termina is the third circle, being the place without the three goddesses. And the moon is the fourth circle, being a place without the four giants. I don't know that we can go deeper than this, 
or how to fit low rule or the sacred realm into this cosmology. Perhaps low rule is purgatory and the sacred realm is heaven, but one you can only get to from the realm of the Ocean King by dying and going to hell first. I was just interested in your thoughts. Thank you for taking the time to read this. Sincerely, Charlotte. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Charlotte, for taking my metaphor and <laughs> running with it to logical extremes I never dreamed of. This is a great podcast. Oh, my God. Episode. Our, our listeners are throwing some are bringing it. bangers at us. What do you make of this, Crystal? Uh, this concept certainly works with how people tend to read the Stone Tower, where where um, Ikana is kind of a, a hellish place because it has is a place without the, the goddesses and has indeed cursed them. That does make sense. Yeah, I, that, I, I think that there's a tendency to read a lot of Abrahamic ideas into a setting that is insistently not Abrahamic in any real way. And I was probably overstepping my bounds by making that comparison in the first place. Yeah. But I could definitely see the people of uh, the Oceus's ocean being like, no, we ain't going out there. I just think it, I'm sorry, it's just such a, a bratty know-it-all kid raised in the Southern Baptist Church. <laughs> Lobbing these nuggets of theology at everybody. It's great. Damn. What? Bratty kid. Well, you were kind of bratty and kind of know-it-all. What? Know-it-all, sure. That ain't what a, oh my fucking God, we're going to have an argument about okay, this know shit it off all. mic later. I'll just leave it as know-it-all then. Yeah. That, I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. Okay. Southern Baptist Church. Jesus Lord. Well, that's where you were raised. I know. This is an interesting theory. I, I don't know quite how to process it. Well, it's about it's about how the people of the ocean realm yeah. see things. And I don't think that they have an Abrahamic view of the world. Well, uh, hell isn't just a place without God. It is a place that has specifically cursed God. Whereas in this cosmology, Oceus is like a, a peer of Hylia, you know? Yeah. They're not enemies like Satan and God. So I don't know if they oh. would consider Hyrule to be hellish exactly, but it would certainly be, I, I don't know, foreign to them. Yeah, like going over to the universe created by God's cousin Terrence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. I, I like that, actually. It's it's hard to work out, and it's also because every every place holds its gods to be of very utmost importance, and then we have our views grounded in high rule, which you know Hylia, and then the old gods, and we can sort of understand the the smaller local ones like the Deku tree, but who's to say what what framework or level or hierarchy we can really ascribe to the greater world. Oh, that's true. Maybe Hyrule isn't the center of everything. Yeah. Um, at this point, I would probably change my opinion, though. I would say that the realm of the Ocean King could survive the Ocean King's death. <gasps> really? What changed your opinion? Well, he's probably dead. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, don't want, I don't want everyone there to die. That's true. That's true. I think that they're probably fine. And he got everyone to move out anyway, because he wouldn't be there to watch over them. Yeah. Good guy, Oceus. Good guy, Oceus. Okay, we, we got a Majora's Mask one. Mm. Okay. Is this, this, this is, is me? This is coming in from J-Bob. You? Me. Um, is it you? Did I read the last one? I read the last one, so it's you, Cameron. Okay. 
All right, this one coming in from J-Bob. I'm sorry if this has been brought up before. I haven't finished listening to all the mailbag episodes yet, but I was listening to your Majora's Mask episode, and I was surprised you didn't go further with the theories of how Termina exists somewhere below Hyrule, and Ikana was at war with Hyrule and built the Stone Tower in order to invade Hyrule. I thought you would take those theories further and extend them to Twin Mold's lair. However, you merely concluded that their lair exists as some kind of pocket dimension. What if Ikana had in fact succeeded, and Twin Mold's lair is in fact a specific location somewhere deep in the Gerudo Desert, and something prevented Ikana from commencing their invasion? My idea is that much like how the passage into Termina from the Hole in Hyrule twists and flips the world upside down in order for Link to enter Termina, something similar needs to happen in order to cross between Termina and Hyrule. Hence the mechanical use of flipping the stone tower upside down to turn it into a functional passageway into Hyrule. However, something happened shortly after connecting it to Hyrule, thus they were unable to invade. Like discovering Majora or the mask it inhabits in the location of the tower connected to, thus leading to the kingdom's downfall, Hyrule's magicians somehow cursed the stone tower, the way to Hyrule across the desert either being impassable to the distance or the existence of vicious mold worms like twin mold. Not even knowing which direction Hyrule is in, or simply due to Ikana losing the war to Hyrule shortly after the completion of the tower, being completely wiped out, and the magics that powered the stone tower seeped out over time and cursed the land of Ikana. This also led me to think about the war with Hyrule and the passage in the Lost Woods. What if it was the passage Hyrule used to ferry troops and supplies to their forward outpost in Termina Field and Ikana never managed to find the passage? Once the war concluded, the troops and peoples of Hyrule settled the field with the Gorons settling in the northern province, Deku Scrub settling the southern province, and Zora and Gerudo settling the western province. Huh. Over time, the passage between Hyrule and Termina was forgotten, and the peoples of Termina stayed the hell away from the eastern province, initially because it was a scorching battlefield after the war, then because of the cursed nature of the land, and now they stay away from it as a general rule with the initial war forgotten. It could explain why there is a mix of NPCs who look exactly like NPCs from Hyrule, while also there are wholly unique NPCs who do not have a Hyrulean counterpart. Now that I've written this out, though, I'm not even certain if I'm a fan of this theory. It explains too much and takes away a lot of the ethereal, Wonderland-esque qualities of Termina, and makes the backstory sound a lot like Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. If you're not familiar with the movie, Tim Burton basically took Wonderland and turned it into Narnia in terms of Fantasyland. Still, it's a fun idea to think about, and I really love the idea that the twinfold fight takes place deep in the Gerudo Desert. Love the podcast. Love y'all. Stay safe. J-Bob. Thank you, J-Bob. Thank you. Thank you, J-Bob. I really like the image of the armies of Akana being like, yes, we finally did it. We opened the portal to Hyrule, and then they pop out in the middle of the Gerudo Desert and get owned. It's like they just show up. And the, one of the old Gerudo kings is there, and he's like, Motherfuckers came into my house! The Gerudo kings are a giant twin mold, or ten of them. Both. Both. It's not very hospitable. No, it's not a good place to be. It's a bad staging ground for your invasion of another universe. While um, you were reading this email, I thought, what if the, the civil war, in some respects, in Hyrule, at, in Ocarina's time, of Time's backstory, did involve Termina? I don't know. I was just sort of mulling. Hmm. Always mull. <laughs> Do I know? Mulling. I was mulling. No, 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 no. Explain what you were mulling over to me. That the civil war in the backstory of Ocarina of Time could have involved Termina or oh. the Terminians. Oh. And I don't know, throwing this out as a random thought, uh, 
what unified the Hylian Hyrulians was um, another force entering in. The dark interlopers? Uh, yeah, effectively. Oh my god. We've come back around to Terminians <laughs> being the dark interlopers. <laughs> I mean, I kind of like the theory. It's definitely a kind of like... It, it, it has a certain texture to it that's very much like... Um, you know how some fantasy novels are big on like portraying the world as being a series of wars and battles? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it's got that feel to it. Um... What the other bosses? I can't remember Majora's Mask precisely Goat. enough. You know, I know the bosses, oh. but do any of the other ones have that weird entryway into their boss fights, like Twin Mold? No. Yeah, Twin Mold is unique physical... in that respect. Twin Mold's unique. Yeah. Okay. It is a very weird place. Everyone else is on a, in a regular boss room. This was when um, the, the the podcast was a, a tight two hours usually per game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was that was a little bit different. It was a different era. But thank you for uh, expanding on this in a very logical uh, place to to uh, consider expanding those uh, theories in Majora's Mask. Yeah, yeah, I think that there's definitely a lot of room here for that kind of storytelling. I mean, like, there's a whole subgenre of fan fiction that's exactly this, viewing Zelda through the lens of more traditional military-oriented fantasy fiction. And I think there, there's definitely room for more of those as theories go. I, 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 I'm with you, Crystal. I love the idea of them being... <laughs> they show up with all their dread magic and shit, and then they just, like, they pop out in the middle of the Death Desert, and Twin Rova's there, and it's just like, huh. And they're like, huh. And Twin Rover's like, uh, cool dark magic. We'll be taking some of that. Excuse me. Was it Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where there was a very aggressive um, alien race and then they came to invade like Earth or something, but then they ended up being the size of like Pikmin and then a dog ate them? Yeah, that that sounds like Hitchhiker. That's great. Same. Yeah, they got ate by a dog when they came out into the (laughs) Karuto Desert. Just one pea hat showed up. Um. Okay, this next email is from Jackson. I've been thinking of doing a The Legend of Zelda marathon, and I'm not sure whether I should play them in order of release or in the canonical order. Also, would it be worth it for me to buy to Link to the Past and Four Swords cartridges, another Game Boy Advance, and Link cables so that I can play Four Swords for my Zelda-thon, and I would still need to buy Four Swords Adventures, a GameCube, and a GC controller. Also... What do you think about doing some podcast episodes on the remakes, such as the Wind Waker HD, Skyward Sword HD, and Ocarina of Time 3D? Thanks a lot. This is my favorite podcast for my favorite video game series, and I really appreciate the long, drawn-out episodes that are just so good. Keep it up. Jackson. <laughs> Thanks, Jackson. Thank, Thank you, Jackson. Jackson. Um, I, I am typically an advocate of release order. I think with this series in particular... Well, first of all, in canonical order, the timeline's going to split multiple times, so yeah. I'm not even sure how you do that. But, you but also, clone it, yourself. it's not really like there's so much of an ongoing story that I, I feel like that would be enlightening. No. You have to actually split off into three separate timelines and play the, the three separate timelines of the Zelda series simultaneously. Yeah. I didn't get a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> no. Kake no bunshin. You, you you didn't do a reaction at all, Cam. 
Um, yeah, uh, for uh, somebody who is a fan already, I'd say going from release order is very um, can be very illuminating. Um, for people who are just getting into the series, of course, I would just recommend what I think would be the strongest impact on them to lure them in, as it were. But, you know, you like the series, so uh, try it out release order. Timeline-wise, I don't know how... You could try it uh, and see if you if you played it in the cursed timeline order uh, to see if you, you have any additional thoughts. Hey, um, <laughs> right now, much worse than when this email was actually sent back in February. The secondhand market for both software and hardware from the Game Boy Advanced GameCube era is fucked. Um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't try to buy all these things for that because you will go fucking broke. Yeah. Also, Gamecube... since this email was sent, they have since updated the Dolphin emulator to have much better compatibility with an integrated GBA emulator, which can also be played online. So playing Four Swords Adventures is easier than ever. It is the official stance of the Book of Medora podcast that one should, of course, use ROMs of your own owned software in order to play on emulators. Is it? Is <laughs> Are we taking that stance? Because I don't agree with that. Hey, okay. No, I was I was doing a thing. Okay, well, you should absolutely not do the illegal action of simply stealing ROMs of very old video games that Nintendo's not making any, any money off of. And they don't sell anymore, and there's no way for you to play it legally. Yeah, I think that all, like, all talks of legality really are out of the picture if there's no way to really acquire it except for on the you know scalper market for the purpose of um being clear we do definitely respect the rules of copyright on the book of medora we do not advocate for the extremely cool crime of piracy thank you i think that that helps to emphasize the the various sarcasm tags I'm cutting out that part and this part. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know what? No, I'll leave it in there now. Fuck it. If what? I this, you, this is going this is going to be the big problem when I try. I don't know. You Cameron, two I just have don't already think, been talking about emulation. Nintendo's lawyers are going to listen to this episode and be like, "We're suing you because you told them to steal Four Swords Adventures." They're coming for me, Crystal. Okay. They're coming. I, I think that bridge has been crossed. I think there's been talk of emulation already. Just pirate the goddamn games. <laughs> <laughs> Not ones that you can acquire legally, really. That is my, you know, if you can. Fuck it. Look, do what you have to. Yeah. Do what you have to. But, you know. I'm, I'm not going to judge anybody. <laughs> no. Huh. Okay. Uh, I, I, but that's a lot of games. Play to them in release order. Uh-huh. Do not feel like you have to play every game. Just play the games that look like they'll be interesting to you. Do not feel that you have to finish any given game that you start, because some of these games are motherfuckers. Also, Four Swords isn't that great. 100% do not buy an extra Game Boy Advance and more copies of Four Swords plus Link to the Past. Do not do that shit. And Four Swords Adventures is a step up, but also... Eh. Eh. Um... What do we think about doing some podcast episodes on the remakes? No. I don't think there's enough there that's different. I would say the Zelda series is very different from the Metroid series in that there isn't anything additional to be gleaned 
except for the various very minor Easter eggs in just a, a, you know one or two parts in those games, potentially yeah. of which I didn't see any in Skyward Sword HD. It's very disappointing. I'm sorry. It's okay. You did find the Isle of Cats for the first time. Yeah, I, I did discover a couple of new things, but those were already in the base uh, Skyward Sword game, which really goes to say uh, there's always something new to discover. Yeah. Um. Okay, okay. Um, Dylan writes in, Dear Crystal, Monica, and Cameron, I was playing Spirit Tracks and listening to your podcast, and I had just gotten to the Fire Realm. I was wondering if the god that the Goron's goddess is, is the Dodongo in The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, whose skeleton forms the Dodongo's cavern, and was a giant Dodongo who ascended to godhood after dying. Love your podcast, and hope you can prove me wrong or right. Well, thanks, Dylan. Um, we're not much on proof on the Book of Midor, unfortunately. <laughs> we can certainly try to find supporting or uh, uh, not supporting facts. Sure. Contradicting facts. I like the idea. Yeah. We really did try to explore the Goron's goddesses in Spirit Track. And uh, I can't remember. Were there actually any visuals whatsoever? I don't think there was. I don't think so, no. So, Dylan, your theory can stand. What do you think of this, Crystal? It's It makes sense for it to be a goddess if the big Dodongo is a Dodongo mother. Mm. Mm. The matriarch of all the Dodongos. Yeah. Because it is otherwise a bit unusual that the Gorons would have a goddess. True. That was pretty distinctive. Yeah, did we talk about whether or not that meant that there were, like, female Gorons, or if that was taken from, like, Hylia worship, or what? I think we generally discussed all of those possibilities. Uh, looking at it now, I would think that would be influenced by Hylia worship, but also I do like the idea of there's just this really big Dodongo mother that gave birth to like a million Dodongos and all the Gorons really liked her. I could see that, especially if it's like, um, it's it's the goddess of the mountain, right? Yes. And the Dodongo in Dodongo's cavern like the big Dodongo, whose ribcage forms the primary chamber, is a is a significant portion of that mountain by volume. Mm-hmm. Yes, so I could buy that. The roots of that mountain, which make it really cool. Yeah, and really, like when you get down to it, even in Breath of the Wild, when the Gorons are are you know influencing a uh, divine beast, it's still a Dodongo. It's still a Dodongo. <laughs> It also makes sense that that the spirit track Gorons would be the ones uh, to worship this one because this happens in the timeline where Ganon kills the big Dodongo. What? Because the big Dodongo only dies in the adult timeline, right? I guess you might die in the child timeline. Hold on. The big Dodongo is definitely... Are we talking about the same big Dodongo? The one that's in the... Do you mean King Dodongo or the Big Dodongo? The Big Dodongo. I thought our theory with that in Ocarina of Time was that Ganon killed or tried to kill one of the gods in each realm. Oh, I thought that. No, I haven't thought of that because, like, the you can go you can go inside Go Dodongo, Go Dodongo, God, Go Dodongo in both the ti- child and adult timelines. Right, but did you two talk about? Um, you know, Gandorf killing the Deku tree and uh, Jabu Jabu, and then what was that one for the Gorons? We must have. Yeah, we definitely talked about that. I remember that. 
I don't remember the specific form that that discussion took, though. It's been too long. It's been like three, three, three years at this point, maybe a little longer. Probably four. Shit. I just have this image of like, okay, the Gorons are moving to, to this new place. They are carrying the memories of, of what they had before. And they, they hear the stories of before Ganon came, there was this really big Dodongo who was like, like the ruler of the mountain and almost as big as a mountain herself. And she became the mountain goddess. Yeah, I do like the idea. Or it's like the Dodongo is the guardian of the Gorons who helps them get to Hyrule in the first place and then dies on the place that becomes Death Mountain. Aw, yeah, carrying them on her back. Yeah. <laughs> Neat. Okay, there we go. I'm liking this. It's like when they fled the War of the Demons, the Go Dodongo, one of the great spirits of good, took her people, the Gorons, into the land that would become Hyrule. And that explains the missing god. Yes. Hey, I'm for it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big Mother Dodongo. Dylan included a joke, but I I don't know if we have read it. Um, we're not scrolling down to see. We're not scrolling down to see, but maybe we've not read this check. one. No. Ooh. Okay. Great. <coughs> this email is from Jackson. I've been listening to your Skyward Sword episodes and Spirit Tracks episodes. As I move through the episodes as fast as possible, I have noticed that y'all have brought up the subject of doing the Mother slash Earthbound series episodes. I would just like to say that I love the idea, that idea, as Earthbound is one of the greatest RPGs of all time. Please do an episode on it. I I would love to. I don't think we're going to. Aw. Because, I mean, like, us doing lore episodes on a series that isn't Zelda requires that all three of us have a shared passion to one degree or another for that series. And we're not getting a super cool looking game in the Earthbound series in future to get <laughs> the whole podcast. Dad. Yeah. To get our whole podcast excited about Earthbound in such a way that would justify us spending the time on it. The thing is that also they never made Mother 3. <gasps> Wait, what? They never made it. Anyone who said they played it is lying to you. <gasps> oh. It's a psyop by Nintendo. That's true. <laughs> is it the the movie that everybody thinks they've watched? Yeah, basically. In childhood. I can't remember what that was. Shazam starring Sinbad? Right. Oh. Oh, no. That's That that has to be a thing that only affects our generation, right? Because anybody younger than Crystal has no idea who Sinbad is. Yeah, probably. Actually, I'm surprised that Crystal knows who Sinbad is. Yeah, I I saw movies in the 90s. When you was wee baby child. Yeah. What would you call a mother podcast? Book of Mother. <laughs> Book of Mother. I'm thinking. I'd have to think about it for a while. I, I don't know if I would name it Book of no. anything. It would be that tagline that Itoy had. Oh. Happiness, tears, well, I can't remember. Strange, sad, funny. Yeah. You know what? Let's do the Metroid podcast. Okay. And then we can consider a mother podcast. <laughs> it, sure. Okay, Crystal, if you decide at some point to play through the Mother series, including the fan game Mother 3 made by Clyde Mandolin, then by all means, I'd be happy to come along with you on that journey. Okay. After the... Yeah, one series at a time. Okay, this is... Uh, 
this is a this is a chunky one. This is a chunky one. Can uh, we summarize? Should we? Should How are we, we doing? Ta- should we tag in and out on this? Sure. Yeah, we can tag in and out. Or I think maybe. And like stop part way through it to discuss parts of it that have gone gone over so far. Yeah, that's probably the best. I appreciate that um, Axon took us at our word when we said we like long emails. Yeah. Because we do. Uh, Crystal, is it your turn? I'll start. Greetings, Monica, Cameron, and Crystal. I wanted to start by saying thank you for creating one of my favorite podcasts. I've listened to the whole archive a couple times now and absolutely love how much thought is put into stringing the vast and sometimes vague lore of my favorite game series into something interesting and comprehensive. Your commentary has prodded my theory brain into working, and as a result, I've been developing my own headcanon slash theory that I wanted to present to you. Oh, that's great. I found it strange that the GG's, Golden Goddesses, are presented in Ocarina as the prominent deities in the Zelda universe but they don't make consistent appearances, and any references to them are either oddly vague and weirdly specific. In particular, my brain got stuck on how they were introduced at the beginning of Ocarina, when it talks about Din creating the Red Earth, Nehru giving the spirit of law, and Ferori creating the inhabitants of the world to uphold the law. These statements, along with Din being associated with fire and power, Nehru being associated with water and wisdom, and Ferrari being associated with wind and courage, are just about the only characterizations we get for the three most powerful deities in the lore. I, as it seems many others, found it strange that we hear almost nothing else about them for the rest of the series of games. What struck me as even weirder is that the next time we hear those names in the Oracle games, they are attached to three characters that don't seem to have anything to do with the GGs or their domains, and in fact, Nehru is quite clearly stepping into Hylia's purview by being able to control time. For that matter, why is it that the GGs don't show up when the world-threatening occurrences are happening in the world they created? Why is this Ganon guy running around with the power to kill gods and blight the land, and still seem to at least have some backing from the Triforce piece Din is said to have created? How did Hylia die fighting this demise dude, if she was the one entrusted with safeguarding the Triforce by the Big Three. Why the rule about only mortals being able to leverage the full power of the Triforce, but this rule seems to have been conveniently circumvented by Hylia incarnating Zelda. And then I had the thought that led to this theory. I think that we can stop for just a moment to reflect here. The depiction of the Golden Gods has been in many ways inconsistent and they do raise a lot of troubling questions i also want to say i love this spirit of questioning is terrific this is a solid bunch of emails and i'm so happy that uh, listeners of this podcast are are making their own theories it's it's not you know we're not out here to necessarily propagate the accursed timeline we're out here to have you know listen to all of these wild wacky you know completely valid uh theories that uh, that everybody's crafting yeah i want people to you know to have the mentality of like thinking about things deeply mm-hmm. and they are and, and especially with regards to things that in many ways just don't go that deep on their own yeah because you you put yourself into the work and then you like you learn things about yourself it's really nice, that transformative work. Shall I tag in? Yeah. 
Okay, so the theory goeth thusly. What if the Legend of Zelda series is all about the three goddesses and a conversation, of sorts, that they are having about how their creation should be structured? Let us say that Hyrule was created, the physical landscape by Din, the laws by Nehru, and the peoples by Furore. As an aside, it just occurred to me that, like, Furore is the only pronunciation that makes sense with, like, the way that it would be read in Japanese, so I guess it, I've been calling her Furore uh, erroneously for 23 years now, but I'm walking it back. God. They created the Triforce to benefit their new world and its inhabitants, and together decided to step away from the world and let the minor gods and mortals live as they saw fit. Now we know that conflicts arose in the world when peoples and nations sought to control the Triforce, and my thought is that maybe each of the goddesses each decided to back a different people. But how could the goddesses help from outside the world? Perhaps, much like Hindu deities have lesser incarnations they make to accomplish specific goals, the goddesses created lesser incarnations to express their wills. The first would have been Nehru. Why? Because she is the giver of the laws. She can make decisions about how things should be run. She creates Hylia to favor the Hylians and humans in the war. Din follows suit by creating Demise to represent the interests of the morals closest to the Red Earth, the Demon Tribe, and the monsters. Finally, Furore's representative steps in to affirm the law that has been made and protect the remaining peoples. Because the demons have a more violent nature, the quickest way to peace was for Furore's incarnation to side with Hylia and end the war. The final outcome is that Hylia and Furore's incarnate god representative are both dead, and demise is sealed, and the Hylians have possession of the Triforce in the sky. I just want to stop for, well, actually, let's, uh, let's find out if this aside is about this. Okay. As a quick note, I use the word incarnation not as the eternal goddesses walking around in the world, but as individual entities created with some of the goddesses' essence and powers, but having their own personalities and goals that tend to align themselves with the purpose for which they were created. As I mentioned earlier, Hindu tales often play around with these kinds of things. It's particularly interesting when you have things like servants in the heavens that are punished to reincarnate as demons to be killed by the heroes until their time is served. I would like to pause for just a moment to reflect that the idea that Everything that happens within the Legend of Zelda being a proxy conflict between the Golden Goddesses was actually a pretty common fan reading for about a 10 to 15 year period. Was it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Have you never seen like fan art that depicts Ganon as being backed by Hylia? Oh, yes. Or Din, rather? Ganon as backed by Din is very much a thing. Are you familiar with that, Crystal? Yes, I definitely remember an, uh, an understanding that the three characters were like subgradients of the goddesses. So it's like they were they were divines walking around of themselves. Now, this kind of got fouled up a little bit by the release of Skyward Sword, but even now, uh, the, uh, you can see here that the idea of tying Din to Demise and all the demons that came after it, it, it's still a thing. So at the end of the first conflict, there exists an imbalance where there should have been equality. The artifact left to benefit the whole world is in the sole possession of the Hylians in Skyloft. The imbalance leads to resentment and anger on the part of those with a disposition towards power, the demon tribe, and their sealed god general. In this state, malice is born into the world and begins to grow. It begins to fester and change those it has infected, and the longer the imbalance exists, the more malice grows. 
The ballast grows strong enough within Demise and the Demon Tribe that they are able to start pressing against their, bound, their bonds and reaching back into the world and to the Sky Realm. This is when Hylia makes another move to keep control of the Triforce. Since the law states that gods cannot fully use the Triforce, she would reincarnate as Zelda, Link would be born and serve to affirm this new rule, and together they would use the Triforce to obliterate the imprisoned. What's more, golden goddesses are now aware of the flaw in the status quo of their world, so all three work with Link to forge the Master Sword and the Hero Spirit to oppose the growing malice that threatens their whole creation and kill the warped and twisted demise. So I believe the theory that is being the, sorry. So I believe the story that is being told throughout the games is actually variations of this story, which I think adds some interesting aspects to how the games play out. For instance, it isn't that Ganon is Demise. The malice that infected Demise took advantage of the law that Halia set down when she became Zelda, and that was affirmed when Link forged the spirit of the hero. When Demise was allowed an incarnation of his own, Gandorf did not seek the Triforce to benefit the peoples he was supposed to champion or to find peace and balance with the other races. Instead, his greed and lust to gain power at all costs crystallized the malice infection into a dark intelligence called Ganon, who was completely estranged from the original intentions of the Golden Goddesses. I too? Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to read the rest of it. I feel like this might be why we have the timeline splits as they do. One timeline argues that the world looks like if the Triforce is allowed to be seized by Ganon, the accursed timeline. One timeline explores the compromise of the Triforce being split and given to each of the goddesses' representatives, the childhood timeline. And the last timeline shows the consequences of the royal making decisions about how the Triforce is used, the adult timeline. It would also explain what the heck the Calamity is, and why there's so much malice around Hyrule in the late stages of the story. The GGs still haven't agreed on how to restore balance to all the peoples of the world. You have all inspired me to so many more thoughts, but this email is way too long already. Thank you so much if you've read this far, and I look forward to hearing more from the three of you, if and when you have more podcasts to make. Until then, I wish you all the best. Best wishes, Axon. Thank you. Thanks, Axon. Thank you. This idea of the demons being um, basically a just a, a people who are discriminated against is also an interesting one. It sort of has that same deep empathy behind it that makes people think or write of Ganondorf in that way. Now, you know me, I am always up for talking about how Helia is actually evil and has uh, usurped the gods. Okay. That is certainly you. This also gives me um, on like a Dragonlance vibe where there's, there's the good and there's the neutral, and there's the evil, and they must be kept in balance. And if that balance is disrupted, that creates the malice. Yeah, I think it's interesting, and there's parts of this theory that I really like, and um, the scenario or the idea that the goddesses are in uh, conversation, confrontation, um, crafting together is very interesting to me. Um also, the thought that, you know, even if, you know, Din originally backed a group of people, she rescinded that. And, man, yeah, as you said, the, it's, it is a very compelling feeling. Like, how must it feel to be abandoned by your god? I could definitely see that. Like, as a thing, I don't know that it fits into how I see the setting of The Legend of Zelda. Right. Yeah, I don't... The, the thing is that Skyward Sword completely changed the cosmology of Zelda and... 
there are a million different ways to try and reconcile that with the old cosmology. It's hard, though. It is hard. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard to try to give the old gods more agency because there are many periods or, or statements about how they are gone. They're no longer here. They're no longer doing anything. But the, me keep, the idea ahead. that the demons were abandoned by Din uh, would give more weight to Ganon's line in Wind Waker about how the gods have abandoned you. I suppose so, if you think that Ganon has empathy for the demon tribe as it is. If any Ganon does, it'd be the, the wind-coveting one. The one who's the most evil of all them motherfuckers? Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I, I keep coming back to this idea. Through evil empathy. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're going to be empathetic towards other evil beings, you might as well be evil, too. I keep coming back to this idea that the demons were designed as part of the balance, but also they're just also designed to be assholes. Yeah, I, I hesitate in uh, world crafting where evil is a necessary part of the universe. There's something about that that I've always sort of rammed my head against it's it's okay to me if it's not a designed universe if it's just how things spilled out from the chaos right but you know it's are there always uh dark side force users i mean well, must there yes. always be must there always must be there always no be. but will there always be yeah probably due to the human nature or yeah yeah i mean I, I could buy into that but i i feel more comfortable with the idea that the demons aren't so much like they weren't made as they are they became as they are because in the legend of zelda one of the things is that everything that's monsters didn't used to be oh right and if you are a nice enough uh demon and you really want to be a good you, you just become, become a people human. yeah you become a people and by the way that was another thing that i experienced during skyward sword which is uh, hd is what's his name wanders around skyloft yeah you can see him in the bazaar and in at the bridge at night. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. Crystal, have you, have you ever talked to... Uh, what's his name? Batro. Batro. You ever talked to Batro after he transformed? I, I don't think I have, no. I just yeah. completed that side quest and went back to main quest. Because I, I got so into the main quest after the point where I had finished getting all the, uh, all the gratitude in the world that it's like... I never noticed that when Batro transforms, all the monsters on Skyloft disappear. Yes, I did notice that part. What I didn't notice was that he's around. So, uh, yeah, players, you can use the original Skyward Sword to go to the bridge at night um, and the bazaar in the morning, and he is there. Crystal, and Crystal, enjoying things. Did, did you notice that, that all the monsters disappeared when Batro turned into a people? I did not notice that. Yeah, it's, like I said, it, I, I just kind of bounced into the main quest after that point. Right? Yeah, it happens really close to the end is the reason. It's his demonic power that was spawning the monsters there in the first place. Involuntarily? Yeah. Huh. I guess that in a prior, like, in some prior part of his life, I don't know how Batro became a demon in the first place, but, like... He's not an inherently evil guy. He's not more violent than other people's. It, it might have been something that you do inherit down or some innate quality of you, but that is changeable. I think Batro used to be a bad guy, but now he's just like a bad guy, you know. So it, 
I think that this is the sort of theory where I don't necessarily agree with it, but at the same time, it probably has more grounding and support throughout the more general fandom than something like the Accursed Timeline does. Uh, Absolutely. I, I like the concept of the goddesses being like, okay, let's explore the timelines. What if Ganon got the Triforce? What's the worst that could happen? Oh. Uh, okay. What if we split it up? Mm, okay. What if we gave it to Zelda? Mm, it all turns out bad. <laughs> it's like, man, Whoops. we really fouled this one up, didn't we? It reminds me a bit of Order of the Stick. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Is that funny? No, I'm just. There's someone who listens to this podcast that's a big fan of that comic. Oh, absolutely. Have you read it, Crystal? I have not read that comic. No. Um, there's a premise in Order of the Stick, which is like the biggest spoiler in the entire series, so I won't go into it. But it fits very much into this conversation. And for <laughs> the one person who listens to this podcast, they're losing their fucking mind. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's. That's a pretty good chunk of emails. Yeah, do you want to call it here? We still have a ton left. We're not going to finish it this episode. No, no. I think that we would want to like include some more emails the next time there's a trailer like at the Game Awards. We because a- the, the, the number of emails has slowed down precipitously. I don't know about that. We've breached into April. Uh, we're now into May. Oh, wait, shit. We got quite a few in August. Yeah, there's 11 emails left. Okay, okay. Do we want to get it down to just 10 left? Okay, yeah, let's do one more. Okay. Um, Emily writes in, I was listening to old episodes, and y'all made a joke about Zelda 2 The Adventure of Link MMO. And while that was a fun goof, what if they did make a Zelda MMO? Would you play a Zelda MMO? What kind of character do you think you would make? I assume they would have all the Zelda races as playable. Gorons, Zora, Gerudo, Rito, Koroks, Hylian, Sheikah, and possibly more. Maybe even have a Ganon faction where you could play Moblins, Bakapins, Lazalfos, Stalfos, and Lynels. How do you think they would do that kind of story in an MMO? Would Link and Zelda be NPCs? Or would the hero simply be the player character like how FF14 has the player be the Warrior of Light? It would be neat if the game had little dialogue nods to being Azora with the spirit of the hero. Lastly, where would you put it in a timeline? Is there a specific era where you think an MMO would be most appropriate? to explain the sheer amount of adventurers. Even if the game assumed your character was the hero, I feel it would still need some kind of explanation to all the other adventurers running around. Thank you, oh, Emily. That, that's, a, that's a hell of a question, isn't it? If, if a Zelda MMO came out, I would be obligated to play it. It would also destroy this podcast because <laughs> we, we would we have could, to be coming back for every fucking patch the FF14 does. God. <laughs> They've been running non-stop updates to World of Warcraft for 17 fucking years. Firstly, Nintendo would never make an MMO. Their MMO would be so weird. It would be very alien. I don't I can't conceive of how Nintendo Nintendo would take it back to the chalkboard. Like we we would not understand it. Monica Yes. Would you play a Zelda MMO? Oh, have we discussed this on the podcast? I feel before? like we must have sometime in the past 3 or 4 years. Okay. Uh, the the thing about MMOs is that way back in the day when the free MMO to play was Priston Tale. What? Oh my god. Do, do you remember? <laughs> what the fuck are you talking and about? And also another one which was uh, in uh, 
uh, oh, what was it called? I cannot remember. RuneScape? No. Okay. This is before that? No. We can look it up. Pris- no, you don't. We're just about keep, just free keep... popular MMOs of the time. Just keep, just keep telling the story. Uh, Adventure uh, Quest? Uh, no, it was like a, a sprite-based one. Ragnarok, Ragnarok Online. Online. Yeah. Fuck. Yes, there Kristen we go. Tale and Ragnarok Online. Right, this will date me uh, very uh, well, I'm God, sure. Kristen okay, Tale's go. still going. <laughs> I've, I've never. I you're starting. Your in computer on the, cannot run. Could not run. Kristen Tale. You're starting starting in on a story. I think I don't know. Oh well, I'll share parts of it if you would like. Yeah, go on. I had uh, cable internet, so I could play. Uh, Cameron could not play these games. But um, I sank some time into Priston Tale, not so much Ragnarok Online, that was my sister's, and realized this is a giant time sink. And uh, this led to the foundational um, determination that Cameron and I should not play MMOs. That isn't what did it. It might have been on your half. Well, yeah. But what did it for me was that I tried out the original Guild Wars uh, back when that game was just launching, rolled up a Necromancer in green armor, thought I was cool as shit, uh, played for eight hours without realizing that I had been going for eight hours straight and stopped and uninstalled the fucker. <laughs> I said, uh-uh, that's dangerous. We both reached that conclusion, and this has been a pact of our relationship. For 20 years straight, nonstop, we've agreed with each other, we don't play MMOs because we have very... We have a we have two personalities that are equally vulnerable to the particular way that MMOs hook their players. I think it's uh, for for Cam. It is the I'm going to get really good at this thing and then spec things really well. And also number go up. Yeah, and then my thing is collect everything. Fuck. That one's bad. <sighs> Complete everything. With that said, we would probably play a Zelda MMO. We would probably play a Zelda. <laughs> They made Priston Tale 2? What? what? I don't have many stories about Priston Tale, but my, my main story is uh, my sister also played more Priston Tale than I did, but she had a female uh, character and I had a male one. And so when another uh, random stranger needed guidance through the desert and I took it one direction and my sister took the other, uh, he followed me and we got lost. <laughs> Shows that guy. I... Oh, that's right. I feel like if Nintendo made an MMO, they would probably do some kind of like Miitopia or Animal Crossing type thing where it's more of a social space and it has oh, extremely limited communication options. Welcome to Wara Wara Plaza. Yes. 112%. So it's basically just you're playing a Zelda game, but also you can sometimes walk around and see how other people are wearing their armor. Which is actually a lot like Pokemon Sword and Shield. Yeah, or, yeah, you... Oh, shit, it's just Pokemon Sword and Shield. No, okay, it's like this. You are playing a mainline Zelda game, only the castle gets blown up, and you're repairing the castle, and you can customize the castle. And then you can go into the place and you view everybody's castle builds. Oh. And maybe do some trading. I don't know what you would trade, though. Hey, Crystal, I have a question about Final Fantasy XIV. I know you don't play Final Fantasy XIV, but I wonder if you, like, have insight to this, because our timelines are full of people who play Final Fantasy XIV, right? Mm-hmm. What's up with the with the real estate market in Final Fantasy XIV? Why is that a thing? Um, I, I don't really know how it works, but I, I it's... 
what I've gathered is that's the kind of thing where if if you're not playing for a little while, you lose it. You I have remember to keep that playing it, to keep your spot. I remember that one of my friends in high school used to play Star Wars Galaxies, if y'all remember that one, mm-hmm. uh, back before Jedi were implemented. And uh, that was a game where there were a limited number of slots that people could use to like build houses. Like There was a set neighborhood and that idea always blew my mind and star wars and star well i mean it sort of makes sense if you're pretending that everybody actually lives on tatooine or whatever there's limited shitty housing but just like as a game mechanic why doesn't everyone have their own house and i figured it's it's got to be for some reason it's like they can get people to pay for it somehow i've never understood mmo bullshit is just so strange to me i think even where they could just a lot more space to houses. It's nice in these sorts of games to have artificial scarcity because items aren't special unless other people don't have the item so that when you get the item, you feel great. Nice is not the word I'd use. <laughs> what? The world of Priston is composed of subtle relations of two <laughs> tribes. The one is Morion, being highly dependent on magic and soul. And the other is Tempscron, being highly dependent on power and technology. There are basically active exchanges and positive relations between them. In the meanwhile, several portents and heirs started occurring in almost all parts of the world. It was so weird that they began to investigate it, and came to discover a prophecy of the ancients. They realized that the contents of the prophecy was composed of suggestions and predictions, and almost coincided with the portents and heirs now underway. Uh-huh. However, a real and bigger problem was the predication in the last part of the prophecy that a new evil species would appear. As both tribes suspected these facts and considered a counterplan, in the meanwhile, many kinds of big problems like conflicts and collapses occurred, and the world of Priston came to be falling in a state of chaos. Okay, that what? definitely sounds like something baby Monica would have played. I wasn't playing for the story. Hey, no kidding. It was a free game. This feels like like a rough overview that they were going to fill in specific details later, but then they never did. I sure didn't. What are the portents and heirs? What is the prophecy? Who knows? No, it's just suggestions. It had that in there. They're just suggestions. What are the big problems like conflicts and collapses? What's happening? Something collapsed. What do you want? Okay. <laughs> Things collapse, Crystal. It just happens. <laughs> okay. <sighs> I gotta... Th- uh, fuck. Oh, yeah, I guess we are really all dating ourselves on this one. Um, We didn't find out. Crystal, did you play an MMO early? What was your first? Um, I was never... I never really got that deep into any MMOs. I tried a lot of MMOs, uh, mostly the free ones. And, you know, I always got to, like, level five and then dropped it. There was nothing that, that hooked me. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all right. That's good. My MMO um, is Twitter. Oh, that's the worst one. I don't know, is it? Yeah, there's some bad ones. But also, Twitter actively makes you depressed. It makes me depressed. You generally, not you specifically. So, I mean, like, it might be the worst one. I don't know. What what kind of setting would we want for a Zelda MMO? How does player characters work? I think I think the Adventure of Link era is a pretty good time for a Zelda MMO. Ooh. Hmm. Because you know the, what? the world is in chaos. It needs many disparate heroes. 
We we have we have the Zelda MMO. It is Triforce Heroes. Okay. Yeah. All right. You are playing with other characters online or other people online. Uh, it has to be very specific people and specific instances. Um, the there is no world-ending plot. It's about clothes. Oh, that's about it. Emily, we all want to have a character creator where we can make a Zora woman who is the hero in the yes. can. We we want to be able to do that. And if they made a Zelda MMO, I hope that it would be that taking a page out of the Final Fantasy fourteen book. That'd be rad. Woo. I think that covers it. I think this has been a very... Pro- this might be the most productive mailbag we've ever had. Seriously. Yeah. Um, how do I end this I'll, podcast? Cameron, where can I'll, people find you online? You can find me on Twitter, at Cam Ryder. You can find me at Arcane Crystal on Twitter. You can listen to this and other podcasts early at patreon.com slash Arcane Crystal. You can find me on the Eidolon Playtest Actual Play Podcast, where we play a tabletop RPG where your soul is able to exist outside you and have magic powers. It's a little bit like Persona or JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. What happens if someone shoots the soul? Uh, they get hurt. Can, can you kill someone's soul in this setting? Oh, you most definitely can, yes. Oh, that's terrible. Well, it happens. Oh, um, you can find me on MCU Complete Me. That is a podcast where I talk about Marvel movies. You can I find listen me- to the riveting conversation about chocolate cake. That clip. Yes, about where I'm wrong about the definition of a chocolate cake. <laughs> I wasn't going to go so far. Uh, all these podcasts exist on the Auto Audio Entropy Network, where you can find all sorts of great shows like. Uh, Totally Reprise presents Reprise Falls, where they're currently talking about Gravity Falls, but they do, it's a recap podcast where they do different shows every season. Uh, last one was uh, Common Rider, they did the Prisoner one, they did a Over the Garden Wall one, it was originally a Totally Spies podcast. There's Teenagers with Attitude, that's a Power Rangers podcast. Uh, Homestuck is big right now because Range Touch is doing a Homestuck podcast, but let me tell you, there's three Let Me Tell You About Homestuck podcasts on AudioEntropy.com. That's a lot. Oh, my goodness. There's a... Uh, oh, my gosh. I want to get the name of this correct. Let me pull it up. Gotcha Journalism, also known as I Got Sucked Off by Historical King Arthur, where uh. they are currently going through the Fate Stay Night visual novel. Oh, okay. I get it now. That's the one that gets fucky, right? Uh-huh, yeah. They are they are playing the original uh, pornographic version. Got it, okay. But sex scene's not very good. I wouldn't imagine so. Um, and and that's it for me. Uh, would you like to hear a Zelda joke? Uh-huh. This one comes in from Dylan. I saw a fanfic, or Ganon won, but for some reason, I couldn't click on it. Oh well, I guess the link was dead. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, shit. Shit, that one's all right. That's great. I like that one. That's a good joke. Okay, goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.